Good to see you. Why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Uh, if you guys are new here, welcome. Uh, my name is Brian, one of the pastors, and we've been going through the book of Ephesians uh, since January. We're continuing through this book, and uh, chapter 5 is where we're at today. Um, before we jump in and read verses uh, 1 to 7, um, he's going to talk a little bit about imitation, uh, imitating God. And uh, two things that we often have to think about is we probably are familiar with that phrase, imitation is the highest form of flattery. Uh, another way of thinking about imitation is that we actually hate imitations, right? We hate, like, imitation butter. We hate imitation bacon, you know, no tofu-type bacon. You know, we just want the real, true, genuine stuff. We hate imitation, like, colognes, you know, the kind that you get from the dollar store. It's like, if you like polo, you'll love bolo. You know, like, whoa. You know, it's like for a buck. You know, we, we don't really like imitations. Um, we resort to imitations maybe because we don't have money or because... Uh, but the thing with imitations, I think we'd all agree with, is that they're cheap knockoffs for the most part. It's kind of the reason why we recognize imitations are sort of uh, not genuine, not real. So Paul's actually going to talk a little bit about being an imitator of Christ. And so how is one to do that in a way that reflects Christ in a way that's not disingenuous, but that is actually genuine or real? And perhaps a way to think about this, and if I had more time to actually get my little props ready, I, I would have, but I actually just thought about this during uh, first service worship. But if I had the time, I would have gotten three trees. I would have put them in the same type of actual plot, uh, uh, pot or planter. And what I think about is one tree, the first tree, think of it this way, uh, is a dead, wilted tree. Um, think of it like all three of them are citrus, let's say, for example, hypothetically. And the first tree is wilted, it's broken, it's not working properly. Uh, there are some little fruit on it, but the fruit's really small and black and not really edible. You look at it, you don't really want to eat it because you're very disinterested with that tree. In fact, if you were upon closer examination, you begin to realize that the reason why it's like that is because the root system has actually uh, been broken and been drowned, and it's, it's, not, it's, it's totally dead type of tree, and therefore it's languishing. Second tree is totally flourishing. It looks beautiful. It's got nice, vibrant leaves. It's got big, lush uh, fruit on it, uh, big, bright oranges, and it looks pleasing to the eye. You can smell it. It uh, is pleasing to the touch, pleasing to the eye, pleasing to the sense, and it's the type of tree that if you were thirsty or if you were hungry, this tree would actually bring you a sense of depth of joy because now you can eat to your heart's content and actually be satisfied with the fruit that it offers. If you were to look at this tree up closer, you begin to realize it actually has a robust root system that's beneath the surface. Obviously, you'd have to examine it, take a look at that, and it looks really good in every way, shape, and form to the eye. Third tree looks exactly like the second tree. Only difference with the third tree is that it's counterfeit. It's it's an imitation. It's a cheap knockoff. It's fake. It has fruit, but the fruit is actually plastic. It doesn't even have roots, in fact, because it's just a stick that goes into like one of those like, I don't know what you call it, you buy them at Michael's, you know, it's kind of like a sponge type thing. You kind of stick your finger in it. Does anyone know what that's called? Nobody knows what that's called. Thanks for the help. Um, anyways, you get the idea. You just stick that little thing in there and it's, just, it's sitting in there so it sits up straight. But it's a type of tree, if it was actually a personality, it would be the type of tree that would basically give off a warning to say, stay away, because if you get too close, upon close examination, you will discover that I'm nothing but a fraud, right? Frauds like to keep people at arm's length. It's one of the reasons why sometimes many of us try to keep people at a distance. We marginalize ourselves. We alienate ourselves. We don't let others get to know us because we are afraid of being found out a fraud. And each of these three trees, the one obviously in the middle is the one that God wants to bring about life. The first one obviously is just natural, it's death. The third is just simply a counterfeit. But what Paul is going to say is as Christ moves in you, as the gospel liberates you, as you are transformed, may you be people that imitate. Not like the cheap knockoff, but like a true, genuine imitation of Christ. Is Christ a life-giving source. Yes, Christ is like tree number two. He is life-giving, life-generating. He is a blessing. He's the type of uh, savior that you go to him, you partake of him, you find life. He is life 
giving. He flourishes. He causes others to flourish. And this is what Paul is really referring to, so that we would be imitators of Christ. So what Paul is going to begin to do now, he's going to begin to describe how we do that. So I want to read the passages, and then we'll begin to jump in and take a look at how this works itself out. So verse 1 says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But, that word marks a transition, it connects, but it demonstrates obviously there is a hindrance, there's something in the way to keep one, the people to whom he's writing to, uh, at arm's length from flourishing in a way of imitating God. So he'll unpack that. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as it is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, the, that is the, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. In verse 7, he says, therefore, do not associate with them. So, that's a sobering passage. I think all of us would read that and assume that this is not a lightweight type of passage where you read this and you walk away and you feel really excited and good and happy and peaceful and all your anxieties are calm. In fact, this is sort of an anxiety-creating type passage potentially because you can read this and be like, oh, is that, is that me? Is that, is that where I'm at? Because Paul levels the playing field and basically says that this is really important to hear what he's about to say because there's a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake. It's one of the reasons why Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you. The assumption is, is that we are prone towards believing words that have no weightiness or no value. They have no significance. They're hollow. They're shallow. They're thin. They're weightless. What Paul is saying is that don't be deceived. Believe the truth. Believe what I share with you. Believe what Jesus has said so that you don't miss out on inheriting God's kingdom. Does that make sense? So there's a, lot, there's a lot at stake here that Paul is really trying to emphasize. So I realize this is sort of a heavier type of subject matter that we are normally uh, looking at, but this is one of the benefits of basically taking a book, going through it line by line, verse by verse, and just letting it inform us. And one of the dangers for us as people who read a 2,000-year-old uh, piece of uh, literature, and actually long older than that, is we read it with lenses that cause us to interpret it in ways that are pleasing or palatable to us. And the point is, is that we can't do that. There's really not room for us to do that. And the temptation is to want to do that, to make it fit more pleasingly within our culture and our society. We can't do that. If really eternal life, as Paul says, is at stake, then we have to understand it on its terms, not our own. You guys follow? You guys ready to do this? I'm going to pray. We'll jump in. So God, we ask for your help. We confess. I confess. God, we want to put lenses over this and to tint it, to color it in a way that's more pleasing to our culture, our society, so that we could have it both ways, really, so that we could have both life and at the same time be accepted by a world that is not in life. God, what we need is we need honesty. We need you to help us to open our eyes, to open our ability to see these things and be honest with you and be honest with ourselves and allow you, God, to inform our understanding of who you are and how you created this world to flourish And anything outside of that, God, leads to brokenness to help us to align our hearts, align our lives with that which is life-giving, yourself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, take a look at the next slide. Um, As I was thinking about this, is that 
we've been kind of using this sort of theme as we've been going into this, is that God's sort of healing actually brings a reshaping of our lives so as to reflect and imitate God. That's what, really what Paul's saying, is that God heals us so that as we are healed, that we would rightly reflect him. So if you think of it this way, as human beings, we are created in the image of God to reflect God. As one scholar, one theologian uh, basically described it, is that as image bearers of God, think of it as like a, uh, an angled mirror. So if, for example, hypothetically, which God technically is not, think of God being up there, somewhere up there. And here we are on this horizontal plane. So if, as an image bearer of God, we were to angle our lives as a mirror so that God's up there and he is light and God emanates light. And so therefore, if we were to reflect God out on a horizontal level to those on the rest of the world, we would angle our lives in such a way so that as a mirror, we would reflect out to the world around us God. Now take, for example, that same mirror and shatter it into a million pieces, right? But make sure that it has some form of an adhesive on the back or some form of a, a thing that doesn't actually cause the, the mirror to shatter on the ground. It just shattered. Does that make sense? So it's still put together, but still the pieces now are all shattered. It's like a million pieces. So now you try to reflect that, and now what happens? It's like a disco ball, right? It doesn't really reflect rightly. You don't get a clear-cut image. Instead of reflecting, it's actually called refracting. It's, it's creating a distorted image of God. That is who we are as human beings. We have been shattered. Our lives are broken. The Bible describes that as uh, the lifestyles that we have lived and the things that we've done and what's in our hearts and sometimes what's done to us leaves our lives shattered and broken. And yet what Jesus does is he comes, he comes to heal us, to put us back together again so that we would rightly reflect and mirror and image him back into this world. He literally puts our lives back together again. That's what the gospel claims to do. That's what Jesus did on planet earth. When Jesus came, he came to people that lives were shattered by, say, for example, one lady immediately comes to my mind. She, we're told for, I think, around 18 years, she was an old lady walking around with a crunch, uh, crooked back. So you can imagine her walking through, you know, with a cane. Her back is all tweaked and messed up. I don't know what the issue was, but obviously for some reason, maybe it was like a severe form of scurvy or some form of uh, misshape of her back. And so she probably would have been that lady that everybody would have looked at, and if little kids kind of walking down the street would have laughed at her and seen her and be like, oh, there's that old creepy lady. She's got the weird back. And she would have been basically in the conversations of other people as being, you know, she's the weird one. She is that lady. What every time that happens is another form of just dehumanizing someone, taking a person who is created in the image of God and just dehumanizing to just merely being an object that looks kind of weird and creepy. We want to resist and avoid it. And what Jesus does is he walks to this lady that everybody would have labeled as the creepy lady with the strange back. You know what he says to her? He says, daughter of Abraham. <laughs> and then he heals her. And what's absolutely shocking about this is not the healing. It's how Jesus speaks to her. He says, you're the daughter of Abraham, which is another way of just simply saying you are a human being and you have great value and significance to God. You're not just the creepy lady with the back that everybody tries to avoid. You are a daughter of Abraham. You have a place at the table. You are welcomed to the family. This is what the gospel does. That is healing, is it not? That's what Jesus does. So what we see is that we have these problems, though. Because if we realize that this is what God wants to do, he wants to heal us and reshape our lives so that we would reflect and imitate him, I think if we're really honest with ourselves, the fact of the matter is, is we don't always do a good job at that. We oftentimes find ourselves on the other side of wanting to do it right, maybe perhaps knowing that we should be doing it right, but knowing that we're not really doing that great of a job. So therefore, rather than driving politely, you know, as a nice fellow citizen amongst other fellow citizens, we get angry because people in the fast lane are, are driving 50, all right? Um, I just drove all the way up to Seattle, and I'm absolutely convinced, I actually put this on my Facebook, people don't understand how the fast lane works, and so you have to actually somehow deal with that. So either you're going to be the guy on the road honking at people, getting angry, which I confess Yes, it's me. And, or, or you just have all sorts of patience and love and kindness and understanding. You're like, oh, they're just okay. They're, just, they're driving really slow. And, you know, uh, but I'm not that person. And so we realize we don't always rightly reflect Jesus well. <laughs> so 
we have a problem. So I want to look at how Paul really lays this out for us. And what Paul does, he lays out, there are some specific problems that we have at play amongst us, among us, within us, that if not carefully dealt with, actually begin, continue the destructive, deformative process of sin within our lives. And so here's what Paul is going to do. We'll take a look at three things. One, we'll take a look at the problem. Paul labels three. Two, we'll take a look at the consequences of that problem. And thirdly, we'll take a look at some solutions that Paul throws out. First of all, let's jump in and take a look at the problem. What Paul does in terms of defining the problem is he describes it in the form of three, or what oftentimes scholars describe as a triad. There's three things that Paul basically lays out. Verse three, but sexual morality, all impurity, and covetousness must not even be named among you. Now, why would Paul say that? Well, Paul was readily aware of the fact that these were things that the early church, these Christians, these people redeemed, transformed, washed, cleansed by grace, uh, actually were dealing with. So the reality is, is that it's not because they were perfect people and they never did any of these things that Paul has to write these things. The reason why Paul writes these things is because this is stuff that they were dealing with. And so Paul is saying that, look, if you continue in these things, then what you're doing is you're giving proof or evidence to the fact that you've never really truly met this transformative grace that comes to you. Because you're giving evidence to the fact that you're still mastered by these very powerful forces that are at work within your heart. That will bring brokenness and destruction. And what Paul is saying is we've got to address these things. So first of all, we'll take a look at sexual morality. We'll describe it as fornication or filth and greed. So next slide, we'll jump in and begin to take a look at these. So first of all, let's talk about fornication. That's a word, fornication, even though we don't use it very often. Some of your translations actually do. It's one of those words that does not get brought up like on the six o'clock news, but it is a word that the Bible describes. But the actual Greek word might give us a little bit more information that we probably should be wrestling with. So the actual Greek word that he uses there is the word porneia. The word porneia actually meant prostitute, someone who was bought or purchased or sold. So when you think about it this way, whenever we start talking about someone who's been bought, purchased, or sold, what you're basically describing is someone that is nothing more than property, right? Does that make sense? So you got to think kind of first century, this is the way they would have understood the word porneia. Uh, the word porneia would have meant somebody that is nothing more than an object, someone that was sold or bought, they're merely property. So the idea of pornography, which is where we get the English word from, graphe basically means something that's written or written down or imaged. So pornography is basically taking somebody that has been objectified or reduced to an object and put it onto a page or a website. Does that make sense? You guys following along so far? So the idea here is that this good thing that God created and called sex has been reduced to being nothing more than a form of making money, which has basically reduced the person that is being bought and sold to being nothing more than an object. In other words, they're less than a human being. They're dehumanized. This is one of the main reasons why sin is so bad. Sin is bad because sin dehumanizes. Or to put it another way, what God does is God creates good things. God creates all good things. In fact, one of the things that the gospel tells us is that God actually makes us new. He recreates us. He takes us in the midst of our chaos and brings order. God takes us in the midst of the ashes or the shatteredness of our life, and he brings um, order out of that chaos. God makes things new. God is the God of creation. Sin is about anti-creation, undoing the good that God intends to do. And so what pornography is, or porneo basically implies, is it's taking a human being, created, made in the image of God, somebody that God loves, and basically turns it into nothing more than an object to be stared at, to be uh, desired, or craved, or lusted over, And this is one of the reasons why pornography is so bad. This is one of the reasons why in our world is that when people engaged in it have an ability or what happens is it basically desensitizes you to true relationships. It's proven that those that regularly uh, live off of a diet of pornography have actually worse sex experiences than those who don't. It's proven. 
The reason why, in fact, you would think the opposite would be true. Those that are regularly feasting on a diet of sexuality in terms of pornography, that their sex life would be robust and good, but the exact opposite is true because it dehumanizes, it reduces, it cheapens this unbelievably good thing called sex and sexuality that God gives to us as a good gift for our satisfaction, for procreation, for reflecting back God into this world because something happens in an encounter of sex that creates a depth of relationship, a oneness, a unity that nothing else can happen. And the reason why this is good is because God says when it's done within the context of fidelity and relationship and love and commitment, when that, those two people realize that they are committed faithfully to, to each other for the rest of their life, then that is good. When it is ripped from that and reduced from that or uh, simplified from that or you remove the relationship element from the encounter, what happens is it cheapens it and it creates this problem that Paul was writing. And he says, porneia is something that we need to deal with. And so in Paul's first century world, um, this was rampant. It was everywhere. In fact, it would later come to be identified as a very large, broad umbrella type of a term to describe all forms of sexual activity. For example, uh, adulterous relationships, rape, incest, homosexuality, sex with slaves, prostitution, all of this would have been under the larger umbrella term of pornea. And what Paul is actually laying out for his readers is he's saying, look, God wants to reflect himself in you as renewed image bearers back out into this world that you would imitate him, but put away fornication because it stains your soul. This undoes the reason for which God created sexuality and how it's to be brought forth in relationship. And it basically doesn't make one truly full of life. It actually does what Paul is going to describe next. So the next slide, Paul is going to describe filth. The word filth that's basically used here describes or speaks of defilement on the inward person. And this is what sex Sex done in a way that's outside of the norms, outside of the design, outside of the way in which God described it or denoted it actually leads to brokenness. It leads to defilement. Now, I realize, like a lot of us, uh, we may have been or may even currently be living in a state where this is our world right now. This is, this is your reality. None of this that I'm saying do I in any way, shape, or form want to give the impression of of shame or shaming you? Because the reality is, this is the world in which we live, and this is what our world feeds us and says it's just normal. It's how we're to live and operate. But I'm glad the reality is that we can deal with these types of things and begin to look at them within a biblical context and let it inform us. So let me give you an example. I've been pastoring for about 20 years now. I've had literally hundreds of conversations with people that have been in relationships. Some of them are amazing. They're full of purity. They're really good. They are like plant number two, thriving. They are full of life. All sorts of fruits coming out of their life. People are coming up to them, and they're picking the fruit, and they're becoming able to flourish as well. Uh, Then I've seen relationships that are like plant number one, languishing, broken. The roots are rotting Uh, They are bent over. There's no life. There's no uh, uh, vibrancy within their life. Um, And so I remember giving an example. I was talking with a couple. They were standing right over here uh, several years ago. And they had just told me they had just gotten engaged. But the problem was is that neither one of them were really, actually, they weren't really happy. And what kind of, in short, what had happened was the guy was really kind of bummed because his girlfriend, his fiance, was not super excited, not really happy. She was really languishing, to kind of put it in short. And he, as a result, was languishing, right? You know, happy wife, happy life. But the, it was the exact opposite for them, right? Even though they wasn't married. But, you know, she, unhappy girlfriend, unhappy boyfriend is basically what it was. So, you know, they're like, look, you know, we should be really happy. This should be like the greatest time of our life. We just got engaged and I got a big rock on my finger and I'm excited about this. And everything should be wonderful, but it's not. We're miserable. I'm miserable. She's miserable. And I, we can't figure out what's going on. And so I just asked one simple question. I go, have you guys, you know... Uh, I, I realize you said that you guys are living in the same house. Do, do you guys sleep with each other? You know, a guy had only been a Christian for a very short amount of time, and they're like, well, yeah, we, we have sex all the time. And then I, I asked him, I says, have you ever wondered the type of impact that that may be having on her? 
And he goes, I never even thought about it, no. Um, never once even thought about the impact of them having regular sex with each other, even though they are on the path to getting married, what type of impact that would have been have, have on her. I says, would you mind if, if I asked her how she felt? And, and I asked her, I says, you, you know, I, I realize this may be a really personal question, but your boyfriend's right here. Do you mind if I ask you, how do you feel after you guys have sex? And, and that, I, it was like a little pin going into this balloon that had become so big, so full of pressure. She just broke down and started weeping. And finally, when she was able to be done weeping, she basically says, I feel filthy, I feel dirty, I feel so unclean, and I feel like he doesn't care. I says, were you aware of any of that? And he says, I had no clue. I had absolutely no clue. Some might be like, well, maybe that's just a, a single case scenario. Look, to be honest with you, it's not. It happens. I, I can give you dozens and dozens and dozens of examples where that has been the regular norm in every single relationship. Because God created us so that we would flourish. But when we look at our lives and our lives are languishing, oftentimes it can be traced back to some area where we are not in sync, in harmony, in agreement with the way that God plan for things to be. So let me give you another analogy. It's like saying, I really, really want to fly. I really want to fly. I have an urge to fly. I have a, a natural bent to want to fly, or I have an orientation to want to fly. I want to do it. But if you try to fly without taking the proper, you know, whether it be a, a, a parachute or wings, you will die. Gravity, which is a law of gravity, we describe it, will have its effect on you. You buck the system of gravity, say, I don't like gravity, or I am not too excited about gravity, or I think I can overcome gravity, and you overcome gravity on your own terms, it will ultimately dominate and crush you. And what God is basically saying here is, I have a way by which I've designed the human soul, the human being, the human body to function and flourish together sexually. And anything that basically seeks to redo that or redesign that or rebrand that ultimately will lead to languishing. And which is what Paul says, filth. An overwhelming sense of filth will overcome the soul. This is why men oftentimes after repeated pornographic downloading will oftentimes feel absolutely filthy. Because you are using your body, you are giving your sexuality to something that was not designed. You are literally having a sexual encounter with a non-existent object that you've reduced. And it leaves your soul hollow. And what Paul is saying is that all of these things need to be put aside. Because it leads to languishing. Constant, regular episodes of languishing. But... This is the good news of the gospel, is that the gospel can actually liberate us. It frees us, not by somehow expecting fruit to come from tree one. That tree is dead. What needs to happen is a supernatural miracle where a brand new root is placed onto that tree, so it becomes a brand new tree. It can't produce any fruit. And tree number three is this counterfeit. It's, it's worthless. It's, it might look awesome. It might look religious. It might look really good. It's one of the reasons why it keeps everybody at arm's length because it doesn't want to be truly found out. But what God intends for us is to be tree number two, that we would grow, that we would flourish in God's hands and be life-giving agents the way God himself is a life-giving agent. And what that means is we have to allow God's spirit, God's scripture, Jesus to inform, to re-inform, to change, to challenge our notions of these things that Paul's laying out. So Romans chapter 6, verse 19, he says this, for just as you were once uh, presented, just as you once presented your members as slaves, the idea of members is um, objects of your body or portions of your body as you've given your members, it could be your hands, your legs, other parts of your body as members or slaves to impurity and lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. He's basically saying it's like a cycle. It's kind of a fascinating thing that, you know, scientists know that, Pornography, for example, is actually like a drug. It releases, when people engage in it, uh, a drug in your brain called dopamine that actually creates a, a stimulation where you feel really good, a euphoric feeling. It's very similar to actually taking various types of hallucinogens and drugs. 
That's really what's happening. So when you begin to crash and go down, you want more. So you feed your, rather than you know, sticking a needle in your arm and somehow some form of an intravenous type of a drug, this drug comes through your eyes by downloading porn. By letting your mind and your eyes wander and drift, but it ultimately leads to a hollow experience, a desensitization and a dehumanization, not only of yourself, but towards others. And what Paul is saying is that God wants you to flourish. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 says, For God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. Just before that, the verse before that, he says, So now present the members, your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Now, we've got to unpack very quickly the idea of holiness, because oftentimes we think of the word holiness as, you know, depending upon whatever type of background or Christian background you came from, you might have thought about holiness as being, you know, like a, like a priest or someone that is super holy. You know, oftentimes say, well, they're super holy. And really what we mean is that, you know, they don't ever cuss. They don't say bad words. They don't yell at people when they're driving on the street in the fast lane. Uh, they don't drink beer. Uh, they don't drink light beer. Uh, and we have all sorts of categories to describe, like, that. that's a holy person. But the reality is, a holy person, if I can just give you the, the best analogy I can give you, a description of a holiness, or what a holy person is, is Jesus. Jesus is holy. The thing that's fascinating to me about Jesus, that never, never just runs dry in terms of, of, of provoking uh, just my imagination, is that Jesus was literally the life of the party, wasn't he? Jesus was the guy that you know, shows up at someone's house and is like, let's have a party. Let's invite all sorts of random crazy people that normally you don't invite to parties. Let's welcome them. Let's have a feast. Jesus is the one that told the story. He says, you guys want to know what God's like? Want to know what the Father's like? God is like a father that had all sorts of wealth, but he gave his wealth away to one of his younger sons that was super impatient. And that son went out and squandered it all, lost it all. He totally brought a, a you know, defamation upon his father. And, and yet this son at some point began to realize, I've ruined my life. I have no hope whatsoever back at home. The only hope that I have is because I've completely brought shame upon my father's name. Again, it's a very patriarchal society. You don't ever, the worst thing, one of the worst things that you can do in a culture that's very patriarchal, somehow do something that makes your dad look bad. That's exactly what this, God bless you. That's exactly what this young man did. He made his dad look back and he realized, the only thing I can do is hope for going back home and working for my dad as a slave. That's what I'll do. So Jesus says in the story that as he was a very yet a far away off, this dignified father threw all respect to the wind and ran as fast as he could out to his son. That's shocking. Like people listening to that story right then and there would have been like, fathers don't do that. Dignified fathers don't do that. They don't get undignified. Jesus is like, this father does. He lays aside his dignity just to be with his son who has defamed him. Jesus paints this picture that this father throws parties for sons that have totally defamed his name, that this father, this God, is a God that's full of joy. So holiness is not some form of stoicism. It's not some form of asceticism. It's not some form of you know, abandoning all sorts of joy in life. It's actually the exact opposite. And what Jesus is saying through Paul, and what Paul is describing here is that God is seeking to restore something that was lost. And one of those things that was lost is when someone's life is characterized by constant defilement and shame. They don't flourish. They're like tree number one. Their fruit feels as if it's been sprayed with Roundup. Their life feels broken. They have nothing at all. To give. That may be where you're at today. But this is the beauty of the hope of the gospel, is that we serve a God that takes away not just simply the defilement, but the source of the defilement, and it restores and renews that which was once broken. God is a God of creation. He undoes what sin has done. This is the good news. And finally, Paul says, not only fornication, filth, but also greed, which really describes unbridled desires, the idea of impulses or longings that we have. 
See, one of the things that oftentimes we describe is like, well, I feel this. I feel so, this is right in my life. I need to do it. But the reality is that we know that we cannot function. I mean, realistically, let's put all religion aside. Let's put Christianity aside. Let's put the Bible aside for a moment. Do you realize that we as a society of people cannot flourish if everybody was just simply giving into their own unbridled desires? Do you realize that? My good friend Ben right here. If I was like, Ben, I want to steal from you. Ben's like, you can't do that. Who says you can't? I can't do that. I feel like I want to steal something from you. I feel like I want to take something. We, really, we cannot function or flourish as a society like this. So we have to somehow put limits to those things. Or if we can't control ourselves putting limits on it, society imposes limits upon it. We call that jail time. Guys, got that? And what God is saying here is that we have these desires that oftentimes betray us and mislead us. Paul says later that these desires are like idolatry. We set our affections upon certain things, and we feel as if we cannot flourish or function as human beings without them. So we do everything we can in our power to get to that, to have that, to obtain that. And if anyone ever gets in a way or opposes us or threatens that, we either get vicious and angry or vindictive, or if we have even the slightest threat of losing it, we fall into despair. And what Paul is saying is that we've got to deal with the issue of greed. Jesus would put it this way, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things are, uh, come from within, and they are what defile a person. Our defilement, we oftentimes describe it this way, it's not so much the fruit of our lives that's defiling, it's the root of our lives. It's tree number one. We as human beings, as individuals, as apart from God, we're tree number one. We wither, we break, we languish, and yet what we need is a transformation that brings us into tree number two. We can't do that on our own. No matter how much tree number one desires to produce good fruit that's pleasing, if that desire is even there, it can't. It's incapable of doing that. What it needs is somebody from the outside to graft life into it. That's what Jesus does. So the second thing we've got to take a look at, and I've got to go through this real quickly, are the consequences. Because Paul describes this as the problem. Fornication, filth, greed, these are things that we've got to deal with. Second thing, he talks about some consequences. And in short, I'll just kind of say it as it is, because the way Paul describes it, unashamedly, even though I'll come back and try to unpack it for us because I realize that the phrase I'm about to use has a lot of cultural baggage to it and a lot of misinformation around it, which may or may not ring a wrong way for you when you hear it, but I'm just going to say it and then I'll go through and unpack it. But the consequence for not having a break away from these areas that Paul describes as fornication, of uh, illicit, illicit desires, lust, whatever, and all these other things, is Paul says, God's wrath. This is what the consequence immediately is. Now, again, like I said, I realize the concept of uh, God's wrath is oftentimes caricatured to portray God as something more akin to an abusive father who rages against his disobedient children. When things don't go his way, God whips out the you know, belt and starts trying to just snap on any kid that he's angry with. That God is like this angry, abusive, raging dad, which that is actually an inaccurate caricature of who Jesus is. One of the reasons why a lot of times people actually dismiss Christianity is because they hear or find or pick and choose certain phrases or verses that would somehow describe or form God out to be that type of, you know, angry, frustrated, even landlord that's looking to evict somebody, kick them out to the curb, that as long as you can see God is like that, then you can dismiss him. But what I want to challenge you to think about is, is think about God in the light that Jesus presents God. And so let's take a look at a couple things. So perhaps a better way to maybe understand what Paul is referring to here, I think, with next slide, is to kind of take a look a little bit about some of the framework of how uh, Jews would have um, divided history. I think this could actually help us to understand a little bit about what's happening here and why Paul would say such a really powerful statement that any who practice these things um, will not inherit God's kingdom and will ultimately incur the wrath of God. So to understand that, I think we've got to understand at least two different ways in which the Jewish people, first century, would have divided history. The first of which they would have divided or described it as the present age. So think of it, the present age, meaning an age that's marked by or characterized by uh, brokenness, defilement, 
sin, hurt, rebellion, wounds. Uh, in other words, not too dissimilar from the world in which we live in today, right? When you watch five o'clock news, you're like, oh, that sounds a lot like, quote unquote, this present age, right? Um, but there was another way in which they would have described it or defined it as the age to come. So this was the hope of all Jews that one day Yahweh, God, will set the world to right. And he would do this by three ways. One, judging evil, uh, restoring or rescuing Israel, and then ultimately bringing shalom, that God had promised to undo that which is in this world that's bringing about brokenness and destruction within this world, that God will set the world to right. And so what Christians did is, they, and it's basically how they would have viewed that, right? Um, Christians came along, and in Jesus, they saw that God was doing something in Jesus, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God, that Jesus was, this is why it's really important to understand, Jesus is God. Paul will put it this way, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So in Jesus is sort of this merging or this overlapping of both of these ages, the present age and the age to come. So that in Jesus, when Jesus comes to people that are sick and says, be healed, I uh, doesn't really say it like a, a televangelist, but Jesus, you know, get the idea. Jesus heals people. When Jesus goes to people and he makes food for them because they're starving, or when Jesus goes to someone who is caught in their sin, Jesus says, I forgive you. What Jesus is doing is he's giving very clear picture that that age to come when Yahweh will set the world to right has already dawned in himself. It's launched. The sun has begun to rise. Light has begun to break the darkness, that in Christ this is happening. And so if you can think of it this way, I think of the next slide. Uh, uh, let's see. Sorry, back one. Um, if you think of it this way, eternal life really does not necessarily speak of this existence that has no end. Oftentimes when we think of eternal life, we're like, oh, eternal life. That's like, that's that thing that we're going to get one of these days when we die and we will never, ever, ever, ever die. That's eternal life. That's not how the first century Jews would have understood it. That is not how Paul the apostle would have understood it. That's sort of an aberration of how we've come to understand it. Really what they would have understood with regard to the phrase or the concept of eternal life is that they would have seen eternal life as being the life of the age to come from the future being brought into the now. In other words, rather than healing being something way out in the future or forgiveness being something way out in the future, that forgiveness, that peace, that shalom has come into the now. And what Paul is saying is that if you live a life that is mastered by porneia, that is mastered by uncontrolled lusts and desires, and that is regularly steeped and languishing in filth, you're showing the reality that you don't have the life of the age to come presently, right now. That languishing that you feel is a testimony that really your greatest need right now is Jesus. That Jesus heals. Jesus pushes back the defilement. Jesus actually bears the defilement upon himself, carries it for you and I. Jesus was judged on our behalf. That's why he can say to people caught, trapped, mastered by sin and sinful desires, be forgiven. So what's the solution? I'm going to go through these really quickly. There's four of them that I see. I'm going to start from verse 7 and move backwards. Verse 7, Paul basically says, don't partner with these broken, sinful actions. Verse 7, he says, therefore, do not associate with them. Um, some translations may translate that in a way that would look like what Paul is actually saying is that, hey, don't hang out with people that are fornicators. You know, don't hang out with people that do these things. In reality, um, this is one of those areas where in the Greek there is some breath to be able to distinguish whether or not is he talking about a person or is he talking about those that live in particular actions. Most scholars I've read have basically described what Paul is not saying is he's not saying avoid people that live according to those ways. That, that would seem to be a little bit contradictory because Jesus seemed to engage with those people frequently, right? So either Jesus is somehow breaking Paul's own advice or something else is intended here. And I think the something else that's intended here is what Paul is saying is that don't live a life 
associates with these types of actions because they lead to languishing. They are not going to lead to your life. They are not going to lead to your flourishing. They will actually lead to your brokenness, your filthiness, the defilement that you feel, that you sense. They will not turn you into tree number two that is this life-giving, life-generating fruit, bearing good tree that brings life to the neighborhood. So, first of all, don't partner with these broken, sinful actions. Secondly, don't be deceived with empty, shallow words. Verse 6, Paul says, don't be deceived. Whenever you see that phrase, you always realize that the reason why Paul puts that is because there is a proneness to believe empty words. And the idea here is don't believe words that really hold no value. So think of it this way. There are words that we say that actually are weighty. They have value. They are of pertinence. And then there are words that we can say that really don't have much value. They're just... They're lightweight, we oftentimes describe it. What Paul is saying is that if you place your heart, your affections, your mind, your life, invest yourself in words that are valueless, that are weightless, then there will come a point in time when, when those words are blown away, you'll be blown away with them like the chaff. Well, the flip side is Paul is saying, trust what Jesus has to say. The third thing, Paul says in verse 4, be thankful. He basically contacts that in this idea of like, don't use your mouth to say things that put people down, that objectify people. You can think of it this way, telling dirty jokes that make people look bad or they might be racially discriminate type jokes that simply objectify someone. It takes a human being created in the image of God and reduces them to subhuman status. Paul says don't do that. Instead, let your mouth be used in a way that brings thankfulness to God for who God is and what God has done in your life. And finally, Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children. So the key, I think, here is as beloved children. How are we to imitate God? Like a soldier to a drill sergeant? Because they imitate their drill sergeant, don't they? Or like a, um, like a weight trainer to the one who's being trained? Or like a teacher to a student, none of those are the ways in which Paul is describing it. They're all legitimate forms of imitation. They all have some variant form of imitating the teacher, the drill sergeant, the coach, the life coach, whatever it is. But that's not the analogy that Paul uses. Paul uses the analogy that says, imitate God like little children do. The image, the picture, what Paul wants us to imagine our God is to be like a father who calls us to his lap and in his arms as he holds us, loves us, cleanses us, secures us. Out of that sense of being secure, loved, knowing that we're washed, knowing that we're cleansed, knowing that no matter what dad knows about us, he still accepts you. And let the defilement, the pain, the shame, the hurt, melt in his arms of love. That's the picture. Some of you maybe have had notions or pictures or images of God that maybe you've picked up over the years. Maybe it's from church experiences that you've had. Maybe it's from examples where there's been nothing but defilement, um, where you have learned about God or come to think about God, as like I said earlier or referred to earlier, of this God as being sort of like a very angry, raging father looking for any and every opportunity to rage upon you when you don't live up to spec. Or maybe you've thought of God as being this very angry and frustrated and easily aggravated type of a landlord that if you are even a half a day late on paying your dues, you're going to be kicked out to the curb. If that's the image that you picked up from or about God from churches or pastors or leaders, on behalf of this thing that I get to serve called the church, I want to apologize to you. That is not the image of God that Jesus gives us. The image of God that we are being restored into is this image of a father in you like a child being washed and cleansed and accepted. And what that means, that all are welcomed. All are welcome to come into his lap, into his arms, into his fold, 
shifting metaphors and be changed, be transformed, be healed, be put back together again. Have your defilement washed. That's good news. That's good news. And as you are changed, transformed, God calls us to go reflect him to this world so that the world around us begins to get a glimpse or a picture as to what this God's like. We're going to respond. I'm going to have Mikey come on up and we'll finish up. I want to pray over us. I want to invite you to worship. So why don't we all stand? I want to invite you to respond to God. We'll respond by partaking of communion. We have communion in the back. It's a way for us to remind ourselves afresh and anew that the way that God brought us into this relationship with himself was by sending his son. Jesus came into this world, and Jesus was crushed, like the bread that we eat that's broken. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. But that bread was broken. Jesus was broken. His body crushed, bruised, so that we who live this life, oftentimes broken, bruised, trying to figure out ways to be made whole, can actually simply come to him and then be made whole. The intersection for this, where this comes together, is what we call faith. Grace and faith intersect and lead to something miraculous, something life-giving, something transformative, where God takes our lives that were once like tree number one, replants a seed so that something beautiful then begins to grow. Something that was once nothing but brokenness can then become something that's full, like an orchard of of life, giving fruit to those around us. At the end of the day, those are the type of people I'm absolutely certain every one of us would love to be. Because we all have met people in our lives that are like fruit-bearing, fruit-life-giving people, right? We've interacted with them. We're like, oh my gosh, this person's amazing. They've literally given me the shirt off of their back. I'm going to be like that person. But how much more is Jesus the reality of that? That's how it begins. It's just recognizing that we need help. We need God to wash us, to cleanse us, to reshape, reorient our desires, to give us a new identity. One that is in harmony, in agreement with how he created us to be. So God, right now we want to respond in love. So help us to sing and worship you.